Where do you see your career in 10 years? What are you doing now to help you get there? The sooner you start enhancing your skills, the sooner you'll be ready. That's why AARP has reskilling courses in a variety of categories like marketing and management to help your income live as long as you do. That's right. AARP has a bevy of free skill building courses for you to choose from because the steps that you choose to take today will help you to love what you do in the future. And that's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. In recent weeks, we've really focused on some ways that listeners can boost their income. Uh, so whether that's through starting your own side business and growing your network like Hala talked about, or when we talked with local realtor Alan about diving into investing in real estate, well, what better way to test the waters? While you are away, your home could also earn extra income. That's right. Your empty space could be an Airbnb while you're traveling because that's all you need to become an Airbnb host. It's a lot easier than you think, and you don't need to Airbnb your entire house. You could just host your extra spare room. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Welcome to How to Money. I'm Joel. And I am Matt. And today we're talking money, the origins of a made-up thing with Jacob Goldstein. Jacob Goldstein uh, is the co-host of NPR's Planet Money, and his stories have aired on This American Life, All Things Considered, and Morning Edition. He uh, he lives in Brooklyn with his wife, two kids, and a, a small dog, and, and Jacob has previously worked as a reporter at the Wall Street Journal and the Miami Herald. He's written about money for the New York Times Magazine, and more recently, he has published his book, Money, The True Story of a Made-Up Thing. And yeah, we're, we're not just talking about the history and origins of money today, but we're going to dive into where things are today as well as uh, maybe what the future of money is going to be like. So Jacob, thank you for joining us today on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Jacob, we're glad to have you. And, and one of the things that Matt and I do every episode, we have a craft beer while we're talking to our guest. One, because craft beer is delicious. And two, because it's important, I think, when we're talking about money to prioritize something in the here and now that you love while you're trying to save and invest well for the future. So do you have uh, something similar, a craft beer equivalent, something that you splurge on in the here and now? Yes. And I am also enjoying it right now. Oh, all right. But it's so boring. It's so boring compared to craft beer. I feel a little bit embarrassed. It sucks. It sucks. <laughs> I'm wearing a pair of socks that cost $20, which I would have been ashamed of two years ago, probably uh -huh. a year ago. But I just ordered my fifth pair literally this morning of $20 socks. Nice smart wool. I'm not okay, sponsored by smart wool. But they're dynamite. <laughs> they're worth it to me. They'd be worth it at 30 Probably not yes. worth it at 40 but like, yeah. <laughs> great. We all have a line in the sand, right? Yeah. <laughs> My first pair of smart wool socks were in college. I'd gotten a pair, uh, and some wow. friends were like, dude, if you're going to do, be doing a lot of hiking, and at the time I was working at a boys' outdoor kind of summer camp, and we were leading kids on backpacking trips, uh, and they're like, with smart wool socks, you can like rinse them off in the creek, wring them out, hang them up to dry, and you put them on, they feel like they're just perfectly fresh. Uh, I still have a few bears. They're great. <laughs> it still seems kind of like a ridiculous amount of money to me to spend on socks, but also worth it. So I don't quite know how I hold those two ideas at once, but I do. Well, I feel like Joel's the same way. You're the same way, man. You pulled out some winter socks. We talked about this on the show not too long ago. And you're like, you know what? I'm not going to put up with holes in my socks anymore. I'm no way, man. Throw those away. We're going to get some good stuff here. <laughs> That's a good. That's, like, That's empowering, right? I'm, I'm right. too old for this. I'm not a child. I'm not a graduate student. I got a job. I can buy socks. 
it, that's how I felt. I was like, it, it's I'm done with holes in the socks. Like it, I'm past that point in my early mid twenties. I was okay with it. I'm in my mid thirties <laughs> now, man. No way, not anymore. See, that's the thing. Congratulations. Yeah. I've got my one pair of Smart Wool <laughs> socks, you. but otherwise, all the rest of my daily socks they actually do have holes in them because I'm cheap. So <laughs> <laughs> I respect that too. Uh, well, Jacob, hey, you know we mentioned Brooklyn in your bio, uh, and that that kind of makes us wonder how has it been living up in New York City over over the past year. Uh, crowded. I mean, I live in a two-bedroom, one-bathroom apartment with my wife and two daughters. So, you know, we're like very close. We're all very close to each other. You know, we're fortunate. My wife and I are able to do our jobs from home and we've stayed employed and we've stayed healthy. So like at a basic level, I feel grateful. Last spring, last, you know, April in New York City was super duper intense, somewhat scary. Uh, since then, it's been okay. I took my mother-in-law to get vaccinated last weekend. That was kind of felt like the beginning of the end. I'm hopeful. Yeah, yeah. It, it does feel like there's certainly a light at the end of the tunnel now. I know more, more and more folks that I know and some of my relatives are starting to get vaccinated and it's like, all right, <laughs> we're on the mend. We're getting there. How so. are you guys doing? Where, where are you? We're in Atlanta and I feel like, yeah, we're fortunate. We more space than you folks in New York have yeah. <laughs> a little bit more space. Yeah. Um, and you know, the, the weather has for the most part, I, I don't know if we've just, Matt and I've talked about this. I don't know if we're just appreciating it more or if the weather was actually better this year, but it just feels like the weather has been excellent. So we've been really able to enjoy the outdoors up, up until nice. the last several weeks, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> specifically last spring and like last fall, you know, you step outside and you're like, Oh, the sun's shining. Yeah. Oh, we live in a beautiful world. Like, look at, look at the birds, look at the trees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think the pandemic has made us appreciate some of the things that we maybe didn't appreciate as, as much as we should have or could have before. Yeah, but w yeah, we're certainly doing well, but thanks for asking. All right, let, let's talk about money, Jacob. Uh, your, your book is all about money. People do crazy things to get money. We, we love hearing high-flying success stories, and uh, we like to hear about folks that maybe forget their Bitcoin password and could lose hundreds of millions of dollars because of it, right? Uh, yet you start your book by stating that money is fiction. Why are we also fixated on something that is essentially a made-up construct? Well, because it's really useful if you want to get stuff, right? <laughs> like socks. Uh, like socks or beer or a house. The thing that is interesting to me fundamentally is it feels, you know, I, I didn't study economics. I didn't, I, I came to sort of thinking about money and learning about money late in my life. When I was, you know, in my 30s, I was an English major and kind of wary of money. And, and before I started really thinking about money, I sort of vaguely thought of it as this thing that exists in the world like water or gravity or something, something that has some set of like physical scientific properties that mm -hmm. we can't do anything about. And the more I learned about money, the more it became clear to me that that is just not true, right? Money is a thing that people made up together. And in fact, didn't just make up once. It's not just like there's no money and then there's money and that's the whole story. It's a thing that we have continued and are continuing to reinvent and change the rules about. And realizing that is really useful. It makes you more insightful about money. It also makes you realize that there is sort of this ongoing set of choices about how money works and that we can change it if we want to or if we have to. In your book, you kind of talk about the the origins of money there at the beginning, uh, and you know it would seem to make sense that money was essentially created to solve the problem of bartering, you know, to exchange whatever things that you have for the things that you do want. But it is more complex than that. Uh, can you explain how that's so? Yeah, yeah, and you know, to be honest, that story about barter is one I even told. You know, early when I was at Planet Money, we did some live show and we did this idea that money comes out of barter because it's, you know, a more convenient solution, basically a more elegant solution. But as I was researching the book, I realized that's probably not true, basically. What, what <laughs> happened was, sorry, sorry to the people who were at that talk in 2011, I take it I back. lied to you, I'm sorry. Uh, I lied to you, Things have changed I a lot in the well, past 10 years. <laughs> the, the world 5,000 years ago is not what we thought it was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what happened in the 20th century was anthropologists started going out around the world and they had this barter story in their head. But as they were going to these, you know, different cultures at, at, at different stages of development, that did uh, money or sort of proto money differently, they realized they never really saw that barter world that you would expect if that story were true. Uh, what they saw instead was something I frankly find much more interesting. What they found was, you know, so these cultures are typically small, right? They're sort of, we could think of it as tribal, they're based on kinship, everybody basically knows each other, right? So you have this small society where everybody knows each other, and they typically have lots of rules about 
gift giving and reciprocity. You know, you, when you have to give somebody something and then what they owe you in return. Um, and some of the most kind of classic ones, ones that anthropologists saw again and again in lots of different places were about a marriage, right? Marriage is a classic when somebody's marrying somebody else, typically one family, you know, either the bride or the groom's family has to give certain things to the family of the other marriage partner, like cattle is a classic, right? If you're right. marrying somebody, you got to give cattle to their family. Um, another one, kind of awesomely, is murder, right? If you kill someone in somebody's family, uh, there are traditionally lots of specific rules about what you have to give to that person's family. And so the sort of new idea about where money comes from is is that, right? This These rules about giving and, and reciprocity, where there is typically some specific thing like cattle or like gold bracelets in Northern Europe a long time ago, or like cowrie shells, or like boar tusks on some particular island in the South Pacific. Once you have these rules that you're going to have to give this very specific thing in, a, you know, if you ever want to get married, then there's a reason to sort of accumulate those things, right? Then mm. they become a sort of store of value, useful not just for the thing itself, but for this sort of future purpose. And the notion now is that that's where money comes from. Hmm. Interesting. And, and so like, that's the origins kind of, but w when did we see money appear in a similar context to the way we see it now, like as coin-based currency? And how did that uh, change come about in the world? Change. I see what you did there. Um, <laughs> I don't even so, think he intended that pun. <laughs> I'm still going to blame you for it. Uh, so, so it was like, I don't have it in front of me. It's about uh, 700 BC in the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, present-day Turkey, uh, there was a kingdom called Lydia. Uh, if you ever heard of Croesus, this famous king uh, uh, who was like the richest guy in the world, that, that was Lydia. And they happened to The Jeff Bezos of his time. He was the Bezos of his day, not because he started a very clever company that made the world better for consumers, but because he happened to rule over a kingdom that had a lot of this precious metal called electrum. So he just got lucky, basically. Uh, Electrum is this naturally occurring amalgam of gold and silver. So the gold and silver are just blended up with each other into this rock. And so obviously it's awesome to have a kingdom full of gold and silver, but he had this kind of like an ancient first world problem, which is when the gold and silver are blended up together, it's hard to know how much a given rock is worth, right? Because then, as now, uh, gold was more valuable than silver and their value was based on their weight. And, you know, the more gold in the rock, the more valuable. So it's like you could do an assay and figure it out, but that's like slow and inefficient. Uh, and silver in particular, I should say by this point, was used as a sort of proto money in this part of the world for a long time. So somebody in Lydia comes up with this idea of how to deal with this electrum. They say, okay, what if we take a bunch of electrum that has a, a pretty consistent ratio of gold to silver and we cut it into standard size lumps and then on each lump, we stamp an image of a lion, which uh, I believe was like the royal seal, the royal image, to indicate that it is a standard size and a standard ratio of gold to silver. And people loved these things uh, that were basically the first coins, right? Mm. Uh, they, they were little coins. They were standard. And because they had the same uh, weight or mass and the same ratio of gold to silver, they all had the same value. So it's just a much more efficient way of, of using a precious metal as money. I mean, if I can go on, there's a next step that I like even better about what happened in Greece. Can I keep going? Of course, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so this was the same time, like right literally, you know, next door, if you think of the map, right next door to Turkey is Greece. And this is the moment in history when what we think of as ancient Greece, you know, classical Greece, the Greece where they invented the Olympics and democracy and wore togas and all the things. Did they wear togas in Greece or was that Rome? I take back togas. <laughs> um, uh, that it was just emerging. And not long after the Lydians made coins out of electrum, people liked coins so much that they started making coins out of gold and silver. And then Lydia got conquered by the, by the Persians, so they sort of disappeared from the scene. But the Greeks loved coins, silver coins in particular. And what's really interesting to me about that is I think it's not a coincidence that the first place coins really took off was Greece. And also Greece was like, you know, famously the cradle of democracy. Mm -hmm. uh, because yeah. before this point, to be a little reductive, it wasn't quite this reductive, but like before this point, they were like the small kind of tribal societies like I talked about, where it's all, you know, kinship and reciprocity and whatever, warm, fuzzy, whatever. And then on the other <laughs> hand, you had great big 
uh, uh, bigger societies, sort of city-states, but that were very hierarchical. They would be like a priest or a king or a queen who ruled and who largely sort of directed all of the economic activity. Today, like we would call it, I don't know, like a totalitarian state, basically. You know, they told everybody what to do and took, took from some people and gave to others. They called it a tribute society. And so Greece, interestingly at this time, was in between, right? It was too big to be the like kinship reciprocity gift giving, but also too sort of egalitarian to be this kind of top down, the king's going to take everything and, and redistribute it. And so money coins are like the perfect way to have exchange of goods when you're in between, right? When you're in this world that's too big for, for gift giving and uh, too egalitarian for, you know, tribute and redistribution. So it's really elegant, right? And it's a really nice story about how money works and how money allows us to be in this world we're in now, right? Where this big complex society that allows people to buy what they want and sell their labor for money. Yeah, which obviously, <laughs> it seems that's a lot like what we have going on today and, you know, kind of progressing along on a, on a different part of the globe. When, you know, when paper money came onto the scene, it, you know, it turned out that it wasn't even backed by anything. It didn't have any inherent value. It wasn't stamped out of this precious metal. Uh, it was just being printed. <laughs> and so can you can you share the quick story of the first paper money and what made it possible? Yeah, yeah. So that's also an amazing story. So it it, it takes a while. So, so the first paper money comes in around the year 1000 in this province called uh, Sichuan in China. And at the time in Sichuan, so, so coins had been around for, you know, whatever, uh, 1600 years by this point, and they'd spread all around the world and coins were money. And, you know, they were the, the value of the coin was still based on the metal it contained. And in a lot of China, uh, bronze was the metal they used for coins. But in Sichuan, they used a lot of iron coins. And iron is not worth much, was not worth much. So it was like crappy money, right? It was basically <laughs> like their only money was pennies. So like, for example, a pound uh, a pound of salt cost a pound and a half of iron coins. It's just bad, right? It's just that's, that's inefficient. It's yeah. not efficient, right? You couldn't even put it in your car because cars weren't going to be invented for a thousand years. Uh, so, so some merchant in Sichuan has this idea. Uh, the Chinese conveniently have invented paper by this point. And so the merchant says, look, leave your iron coins with me and I'll give you a paper receipt, right? Like a claim check. And you can bring it back and I'll give you your coins back. And so people take the receipts and then rather than go back to the merchant and get the coins when they want to buy something, they just give the receipt to the seller. They're like, look, here's the receipt for the coins. You take the receipt. I'll take the stuff. If you want the coins, you can go get them. And that is the birth of paper money. It's great. Uh, the government sees this. They like it. They get involved. Paper money spreads all around China. And it's really like it's a technological breakthrough, right? It sounds kind of silly today when we associate, you know, technology with computers, et cetera. But it really is right. There's no motorized transport. So if you think of how much cheaper and more efficient it makes trade when you can carry a piece of paper instead of a wagon load of coins, it's huge. And in fact, it's part of this larger sort of proto-industrial revolution, this real economic revolution in China at this moment around 1000 AD when they have more trade, they have scientific breakthroughs, they have cities growing to like a million people, which is like 10x European cities at the time, and like, you know, restaurants in cities and just a real, a real economic boom like you don't see anywhere in the world really until, you know, 1800 or so in Europe. Hmm. Uh, and then... All this is going on. And then, wouldn't you know it, the Mongols invade China, uh, what, around 1200-ish? And uh, this is getting to the moment you were mentioning. So the Mongols also love paper money. You know, they control all of Asia. They're riding around on horseback. They think paper money is a great idea. And uh, Genghis Khan's grandson, Kublai Khan, becomes the great Khan. And he loves paper money. And he is the one who takes this next step, where he says, you know, now this paper money is no longer gonna be a claim check for coins. It's just gonna be paper money. And sort of amazingly, it works. Hmm. Like China keeps going, the economy keeps humming along. There is some inflation, not surprising, but, but it's functional. And then there's a counter revolution. The Mongols get driven out of China. There's this new Ming dynasty they don't trust, they're kind of like populists or something. They don't trust all this weird paper money and they don't like cities. Their dream is like the self-sufficient agricultural village. And they actually wind up getting rid of paper money altogether. So this incredible sort of breakthrough comes in in China, drives this economic transformation. 
And then they're like, you know what? Let's just get rid of that. Let's let's, <laughs> let's forget all about that. And paper money basically disappears from the world for like a couple hundred years. As humans are prone to do, screw up a good thing every That's now and again. That's right. right? <laughs> That's right. It's not broke, Ming Dynasty. Don't fix it. Right, right. Well, so one of the things that made that money possible was the fact that they believed in it, right? And so we're actually going to talk more about belief and the role that that plays when it comes to money and kind of how we treat it today. We'll get to all of that right after the break. You probably think it's too soon to join AARP, right? Well, let's take a minute to talk about it. Where do you see yourself in 15 years? More specifically, your career, your health, your social life. What are you doing now to help you to get there? Well, there are tons of ways for you to start preparing today for your future with AARP. What about that dream job you've dreamt about? Sign up for AARP reskilling courses to help make it a reality. How about that active lifestyle you've only spoken about from the couch? AARP has health tips and wellness tools to keep you moving for years to come. But none of these experiences are without making friends along the way. Connect with your community through AARP volunteer events. So it's safe to say it's never too soon to join AARP. They're here to help your money, your health and happiness live as long as you do. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at AARP.org slash wise friend. I'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans. We always like to get the families together, Matt, for a week yeah, at the we beach do. every single summer. We've already got that trip to St. Simon's on the calendar. Pumped for that. But sometimes those vacations get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? That's right. Why let it sit empty when it could be earning extra income? It's the financially smart thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you've got some extra space in your home, or maybe you have an entire house to host. Or maybe you're just going on vacation and your home is sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you have two options. You can let it just sit there empty, or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Let's say you've been listening to the podcast and now you're finally ready to start implementing some of the uh, the financial morsels that we're dishing up. Maybe you are trying to save up some more money for a down payment on a house, or maybe there's a big vacation that you have been dying to take. Well, the money app Monarch, they make it so easy to help you to reach your financial goals. That's why the Wall Street Journal, they named it the best app for growing your savings. Monarch is the top rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, collaborate with your partner even. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney. And you won't get spammed either. Monarch features ad-free privacy you can trust. They will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. That's right, man. And after trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. It just makes sense. It works. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash howtomoney. For your extended 30-day free trial, go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney for an extended 30-day free trial. And now a word from the show's sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Don't worry. Betterment is here to help. Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Their automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal, rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line, and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words, your money is breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. All right, we're back from the break. We're talking with Jacob Goldstein about money. And Jacob, already some fascinating stuff, man. Uh, in chapter five in your book, you it's titled finance as time travel. And it seems that the concept uh, set off the invention of modern capitalism in Amsterdam back in the 1600s. So how, how did that come about? 
Right. So I should say, by the way, you guys may, may know this already, that phrase finance is time travel, I take it from a, a writer named Matt Levine, who has a finance newsletter called Money Stuff that's free. He writes for Bloomberg, and it's great. So let me just say, if you're listening to the show, probably means you're interested in money. If you are interested in a sort of wonky finance newsletter, Money Stuff by Matt Levine is really good. So Awesome. Yeah. And he recently fired that back up too, right? Like after... That's right. He, he, was, he, on he was on paternity leave. He had leave. twins. Yeah. He had twins. <laughs> he got back just in time for the whole GameStop thing, thankfully. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, uh, so the basic story is it's, you know, 1600. And this is when Europeans are going out and colonizing the world and doing horrible things to people all around the world and getting rich doing it, right? Um, and it's really expensive to build a ship and send it all the way halfway around the world to go get a bunch of spices and come back, right? So you you have this idea. You're like, well, if I could get the money to build a ship and send it around the world and come back with spices, I could be rich, right? But in order to get rich, I need money now. It's sort of analogous today to like, maybe you get a job offer, but you don't have a car, right? And it's like, well, if I have the job, I'll be able to make the money to have the car, <laughs> but I don't have the money now. So what right. you need to do is you need to pull, pull backwards in time the money that you're going to make in the future, right? You're like, I'm going to have the money once I have the job. I'm going to have the money once that ship gets back from, from Asia. But what I need is somebody to give me money now. And so that is the fundamental function of finance, right? There's one person who has some money now, but doesn't need it, doesn't know exactly what to do with it, and will trade money now for the possibility of more money in the future. And then on the other side, there's somebody who needs the money now and who will take it and pay some interest on it or give up some equity for it uh, because they think they can get even more in the future. And so that's what happened in Amsterdam and it wound up creating basically the first modern multinational corporation that anybody could buy stock in. They created the Dutch East India Company, which was a company to send ships to, to the Spice Islands, to Asia, to bring back spices, basically. And they sold stock to essentially anybody who wanted to buy it. And there was this provision in the charter that said, uh, if you decide you want to get rid of your stock before you know the company pays out its profits, you can come to the office with whoever wants to buy it, and we'll you know write in the ledger that you're transferring your shares. And that little line in the company's charter launched the first stock market. Right, the first mm -hmm. stock market was basically to trade this one stock, the Dutch East India Company. But people started buying and selling shares and they they started out on this on this bridge in amsterdam where the ships would come in because that's where you would get the news first right like the way high frequency traders today you know fight over thousands of a second you wanted to be like right next to the ship so you could find out if the voyage went well or badly and trade accordingly and then it got so crowded on the bridge that they actually built a special courtyard where people could go and trade every day so you know we hinted at this before the before the break, but you know what, like what role did belief play in contributing to the creation of the way that they were using money then, and you know the way we use money today, and and how substantial do you feel that that belief is in kind of how we view and, and handle money today? Oh, it's profound. I mean, it's it's the fundamental sort of quality of money all the way through the history of money. I think today it's it's more obvious than ever because there is no physical thing there anymore, right? I mean, when you're on the gold standard, you can be like, well, gold is real, even though gold is only valuable because uh, people, you know, think that it's money, right? Like the fundamental qualities of gold are not useful for not dying or for being comfortable, <laughs> right? It's not like wheat or something. Wheat I would buy is not made up. But today, like you might even think of a piece of paper, but like most money is not even a piece of paper, right? Most money is just money in your bank account. And like to Ones be clear, and zeros. there is not a stack of dollars in the bank uh, for every dollar you have in your checking account. Yeah, it's ones and zeros. And like, there's nothing there, right? It's just... I mean, it reminds me a little bit of the of the reciprocity thing in in like uh, you know traditional cultures, right? It's like you give somebody something and you trust that they're going to give you something back. Like you take uh, some extra uh, uh, ones and zeros in your bank account because you trust that you can use those ones and zeros to pay the mortgage or buy groceries. Like there's nothing. I mean, I guess you could say you trust the government, right? Also, fundamentally, now uh, what money is really kind of founded on is trust in the government, trust in, you know, in case of the dollar, trust in the United States as a going concern. 
I feel like we should change the name of our podcast from How to Money to How to Believe. Like, I like <laughs> after, it. How to after believe. this conversation, you know? <laughs> how to I believe. Think, I like it. I believe. It, just, it makes the most sense now. Yeah. Uh, well, let's talk about the gold standard. Uh, that's obviously a really important period in the history of money, too. What precipitated like the world superpowers to tie their currencies to a colorful metal in the first place? Like you said, it's not super useful like wheat. Like, what makes gold the you know the the thing that they want to attach their their uh, paper currency to? Well, so for a long time it was gold and silver, and sometimes it was more gold, and sometimes it was more silver, and like. This isn't in the book, uh, you should buy the book. Anyways, a long time ago, I actually did a fun show where where I went uh, with, a, with the guy I worked with. We went through the periodic table and we're like, if you're gonna choose an element, why would it be gold or silver? And, and you can actually pretty much get rid of everything except the precious metals, which are quite good because they're like rare, but not too rare. They, uh, they don't rust or blow up or degrade. They're not radioactive. And they're, you know, divisible, right? You can cut gold into smaller pieces in a way that you can't cut a cow into smaller pieces. Or at least if you cut it into smaller pieces, it's not going to last for long, right? So for a long time, it basically came down to gold and silver. But there was this weird problem where, like, you try and set your money to, like, a fixed amount of gold and a fixed amount of silver. And then, like, somebody finds a bunch of silver in the new world. And, like, the relative sort of price of gold and silver change. So then that ratio of the actual value of the metal changes and that kind of messes up your your currency, your paper money. So it was really hard to keep the sort of bimetallism, they call bimetallism, going. So finally, in the uh, first half of the 1800s, England, which or Britain, which at the time was the most important economy in the world, I think, said, we're just going to give up and just do gold. Enough of this gold and silver thing. It's not working. We haven't been able ever to get the ratio right. Even Isaac Newton, when he was the head of the mint, even he couldn't do it. Uh, and so they say a pound, you know, the British pound is going to be defined now and forever as a certain amount of gold. So Everybody winds up following this, not everybody, but most of the big economies in the world, including the United States. In the United States, it was uh, one ounce of gold got you $20 and, and change forever. That was the definition of a dollar was this amount of gold. And there were pros and cons, basically, to the whole world being on the gold standard. I mean, the, one of the pros was, I mean, the classic pro that, you know, people talk about is it constrains governments, right? It prevents governments from printing infinite amounts of money. Uh, but, but a little more subtly, it, um, it, it makes the exchange rate between all of the different currencies that are tied to gold fixed, right? Because they don't change in relative terms. And so that makes uh, international trade easier. You don't have to worry about getting screwed by weird currency fluctuations, essentially. And it, it was indeed, you know, the second half of the 19th century was this kind of era of globalization. And so that was nice. Uh, but the big problem came uh, in the Depression, really. I mean, there were problems earlier. People thought about it. But the real bad moment for the gold standard was the Depression. Uh, because what happened in the Depression, you know, everybody talks about the, the crash of 1929. And that was bad. But that wasn't Depression bad, right? That was like recession bad. And what turned the recession into the Depression was the fact that prices started to fall and wages started to fall. And, you know, once wages started to fall, then people couldn't pay their debts, right? Because your wage falls and prices are falling, but debts don't fall. Debts are the same. So it's harder and harder for people to pay their debts. And you get into this terrible spiral. People are defaulting on their loans. Banks are going bust. Prices are falling more. And a way to fix that is to stop the fall in prices by printing more money, right? That's what the Fed does today, even before you get to deflation, right? If we go into a recession, people start losing their jobs. The Fed basically creates more money, lowers interest rates, makes it easy for people to borrow, uh, keeps prices from falling, keeps us from falling into this deflationary spiral. But on the gold standard, you can't do that. Mm. In fact, the Fed raised interest rates because they were afraid that people would start, you know, turning in their money for gold. And they're like, well, we can't have that. So let's raise interest rates. And they, they made it worse. They basically turned a bad recession into the Depression. Hmm. And it was only a couple of years later, uh, Britain first was forced off the gold standard, basically, because they, they, the Bank of England essentially ran out of gold. And the U.S., it wasn't quite so, uh, so dire. The Fed still had gold. But when Roosevelt, when Franklin Roosevelt became president in 1933, which was really the worst of the 
depression, he was uh, influenced by these sort of marginal economists. I mean, at the time, even sort of mainstream economists still believed in the gold standard. You know, the gold standard was such a such a central way of people thought about the world, like just what money was, was a fixed amount of gold. And like changing, going off the gold standard would be like changing the laws of physics or something. I mean, I think this is yeah. the, the peak moment of this <laughs> confusion that is kind of really interesting to me, right? Where people think that money is some fundamental physical thing in the world instead of this set of choices. And Roosevelt doesn't believe these sort of mainstream economists. And he says, we're going to go off the gold standard so that we can break out of this deflationary spiral and, and, you know, get prices back to where they were a few years ago. And one of his advisors, when he says this, literally says, this is the end of Western civilization. Like that's wow. how fixed in the gold standard they were. But the advisor was wrong and Roosevelt was right. Like clearly that moment, spring of 1933, was the worst of the depression. Things started to get better. I mean, there were other mistakes. Roosevelt certainly made other mistakes. The depression didn't really end until World War II, but that is clearly the turn. And in country after country, going off, to the, go, going off the gold standard is the turn when things start to get better. Right. Yeah. I mean, just the concept of the ability to cr just, you know, create more money is something that is difficult to, to wrap your head around. But it one is. of the results, yeah, one of the and results of that. it sounds like a bad idea, right? Like it right. doesn't sound on its face <laughs> like a good idea, but I but I believe that it is. Yeah. Well, and then, you know, one of the results of that is is growth, right? And so one of the points in your book, I love how you talk about the productivity gains of specifically of artificial light, the, the technology but you talked about it in financial terms, you know, uh, you had some, you had an amazing chart there. <laughs> that yeah, I mean, that's an extraordinary story. Yeah. So like, there is this basic idea, maybe the basic idea in economics is when you have productivity gains, when you figure out ways to get more stuff or better stuff for the same amount of work, everybody can get richer, right? The pie can get bigger. It's a positive sum game. And that's another yes. thing that I think is like, deeply not intuitive. I, it really, I think, feels in our bones like the world is a zero-sum game, and if one person is getting more stuff, somebody else is getting less. And to be exactly. clear, sometimes that is the case, right? There are times when somebody gets rich by screwing over somebody else, but it doesn't have to be. And in the long run, it has not been, right? In the long run, people have become profoundly, profoundly better off as a whole. And that's a, that's like a central idea to me. I think it's a really underrated idea. Yeah, there, there's also too though a, a flip side to increased productivity mecha mechanization and technology, right? Some people kind of reject that. Uh, you talk about that in the book too. Oh, the Luddites. You talking yes. about the Luddites? Oh, I haven't talked about the Luddites in ages. I'm delighted that you're interested in the Luddites. Uh, it's <laughs> they, funny. I mean, I they essentially got left behind, right? Yeah. 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 So the Luddites are a great story. So you know we have this word. A Luddite today, that basically means like whatever, somebody who doesn't have an iPhone or something, right? You got somebody a flip phone still, yep. Yeah. Uh, but the original Luddites are really interesting. And I feel like th that word, its contemporary meaning is not fair to the original Luddites. So the original Luddites were workers, uh, artisans in England in the early 1800s. And the early 1800s in England is this really central, fundamentally important moment in the whole history of of money, the history of economics, because it's it's when the industrial revolution is just getting going. So up until this time, like with the exception of, you know, China uh, around the year 1000, people really didn't get much richer. The world didn't change that much. You know, generation after generation, people pretty much did the same thing. So the, the Luddites kind of got the bad end of the stick because the first big change that drove the Industrial Revolution was in the textile business, in the cloth business. And the Luddites were these skilled artisans who would do things like cropping the fuzz off of wool, right? The, the shearers were one, or at various, various stages of, of making cloth. And they would do it, you know, out of their homes. They were their own bosses. Uh, they, was, they had a thing called St. Monday where they'd get super drunk on Sunday and take Monday <laughs> off. You know, they'd show up at the pub with like a five pound note in their hat as just like dumb, conspicuous consumption. Like they were doing well for themselves <laughs> by the standards of the day. And then along come these new machines that are incredible, you know, productivity enhancing machines that are creating the industrial revolution, that are making the people who own the machines richer. And these machines are really bad for these artisans because the machines are doing their jobs more efficiently. So the artisans are basically losing work, they're losing money, and they decide they're gonna fight back. And so 
uh, there is this series of attacks in England, in the industrial, you know, districts of England, where people are attacking factories with sledgehammers, and these these letters and notes started appearing. That it wasn't just random one-off attacks. It was this it was this like underground army being led by this mysterious general called Ned Ludd. And so, because mm-hmm. these guys were following Ned Ludd, they came to be known as the Luddites, which is like exciting and dramatic right now <laughs> yes. it turns out Ned Ludd didn't exist right he's like a Robin Hood for the industrial age or something and in fact he's he's at one moment he's in Nottinghamshire just like Robin Hood uh, but but the attacks were real and the people you know running England at the time were terrified right the French Revolution had happened not long before and they're thinking ah it's going to happen here now and so they actually come together in parliament and and uh, propose passing a new law to make uh, machine breaking, it was called, you know, destroying machines, to make it a capital offense, to make it punishable by death. And Lord Byron, you know, the poet, he's actually in parliament at the time, and he gives this speech opposing it, saying, you know, this is a terrible thing. We already have enough blood on our hands, but they don't listen to Byron. They pass this law. So now it's punishable by death to break machines, but the attacks continue. There's actually this one incredibly dramatic attack that I talk about in some detail at the book where the owner of the factory is like lying in wait because he knows there's going to be an attack and he has like, you know, barred the door and he has sentries with guns in the windows (laughs) and like they've got like sulfuric acid and vats that they're going to pour down. It's like this wild... It's like Game of Thrones or something. The sea, yeah. Yeah. And, and the Luddites attack and they get killed and then they flee and they don't make it in. And then there's this great like manhunt. And eventually a bunch of them are convicted and sentenced to death. And they actually have this public execution where they build the, the gallows two or three times as high as usual so that these uh, Luddites who are getting killed can be, you know, seen for whatever, miles around. And that is basically the end of it. I mean, you know, the state killing the Luddites basically ends the Luddite uprising. But the, you know, it's really interesting to, from the point of view of today, when obviously we have similar anxieties about new technologies displacing workers, look at the Luddites. Because on the one hand, clearly, in the long run, the Industrial Revolution was great for England and good for the world, at least in terms of material wealth, profoundly good. Uh, but for the Luddites, it wasn't. And it wasn't just like for a year it was bad. Like what you see in England is uh, for several decades, really, until the middle of the 1800s, wages don't go up for lots of workers. It takes a long time between the time when the technological and industrial advance comes and when you see gains for many or even most workers. And so that gap is really scary, right? I mean, on a, on a fundamental level, the Luddites were not wrong. They were acting in their own self-interest. Yeah, no, and, and that's something that still as we, our economy modernizes and things change and especially like what we're talking about the next industrial revolution in the united states of increased technology self-driving cars there are a lot of concerns on that front for people who drive a truck or you know work at a factory that or or even you know work at a fast food restaurant where a computer might take their job all the all those concerns exist today in similar fashion um jake we want to talk some more about bitcoin and digital money and we'll get to some of our questions uh, for you on those topics right after this You probably think it's too soon to join AARP, right? Well, let's take a minute to talk about it. Where do you see yourself in 15 years? More specifically, your career, your health, your social life. What are you doing now to help you to get there? Well, there are tons of ways for you to start preparing today for your future with AARP. What about that dream job you've dreamt about? Sign up for AARP reskilling courses to help make it a reality. How about that active lifestyle you've only spoken about from the couch? AARP has health tips and wellness tools to keep you moving for years to come. But none of these experiences are without making friends along the way. Connect with your community through AARP volunteer events. So it's safe to say it's never too soon to join AARP. They're here to help your money, your health and happiness live as long as you do. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash wise friend. I'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans. We always like to get the families together, Matt, for a week at the beach every single summer. We've already got that trip to St. Simon's on the calendar. Pumped for that. But sometimes those vacations 
get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? That's right. Why let it sit empty when it could be earning extra income? It's the financially smart thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you've got some extra space in your home, or maybe you have an entire house to host. Or maybe you're just going on vacation and your home is sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you have two options. You can let it just sit there empty, or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Let's say you've been listening to the podcast and now you're finally ready to start implementing some of the uh, the financial morsels that we're dishing up. Maybe you are trying to save up some more money for a down payment on a house, or maybe there's a big vacation that you have been dying to take. Well, the money app Monarch, they make it so easy to help you to reach your financial goals. That's why the Wall Street Journal, they named it the best app for growing your savings. Monarch is the top rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, collaborate with your partner even. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney. And you won't get spammed either. Monarch features ad-free privacy you can trust. They will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. That's right, man. And after trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. It just makes sense. It works. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash howtomoney. For your extended 30-day free trial, go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney for an extended 30-day free trial. Spring cleaning is kind of a, an annual rite of passage. We've all got to do it, minimize the junk that we have in our house. Emily and I, we just cleaned our closets out. It took hours, but it was so worth it. Now we've only got stuff in there that we love, and it's easier to find everything too. And so, you know, while cleaning your closets is helpful, well, there's something else you can do for your family this spring. Shopping for life insurance with Policy Genius, for example, is a really important part of your financial planning for the year. That's right. Yeah. And here is the thing that's important to remember because you might be thinking you don't need to check out Policy Genius because you've got a policy through work. But even if you have a life insurance policy through your job, it may not offer you enough protection for your family's needs. And it may not follow you if you leave your job. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Policy Genius works for you, not the insurance companies, and that means they don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another, so you can trust their guidance. Save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. All right, we are back from the break and we're talking with Jacob Goldstein about money. <laughs> and uh, Jacob, before the break, you know, you were telling the story of the Luddites, essentially how they were left in the wake of technology. And so let's talk now then about kind of technology and money, where things are going now. Obviously, digital money is a part of that. Most of us don't carry checks <laughs> or cash no. these days. We're using I digital if, wallets. Do people and, who are 20 like even know what a check is. I wonder we, that We've I actually ask. explained it on the show before yeah. as far as like, <laughs> like what a check ledger is. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and, and we, you know, we use apps on our phones, you know, like cash management apps like Venmo. That is, it's just made things so much easier for lots of folks. What other impact do you feel that the, the digitization of money is going to on, have on us personally? I mean, that's an interesting question. I'll say a few things. One, maybe the most surprising thing to me in, in this context is the amount of paper money in the world is increasing. It's growing even faster than the economy, which is shocking, right? <laughs> because the amount of paper money in my world is decreasing. Right. And so I do want to sort of put a caveat around the end of cash idea, which is what's happening in the world is the opposite. And, you know, I think, I think a lot of the growth of cash clearly, well, first of all, it's mostly hundreds, right? Most of the money in the world by value is hundreds. And even just by number of bills, like there's more hundreds than ones. It's extraordinary how many hundred dollar hmm. bills are in the world. 40, 
40 or so hundreds for every man, woman, and child in America. So like weird things are happening with cash. I mean, some of it is just that people outside the US use paper money as a store of value, right? If you live in a country where the currency is unreliable, where the banks are unstable, you know, lots of people keep their life savings in hundreds and like, right. that's nice for them. And it's also like America gets to sell a piece of paper for $100. So that's like nice for us. Uh, and then also just crime. It's still the best way to move lots of value around without getting caught. Uh, we can talk about Bitcoin also pretty good, but I, I would still do hundreds over Bitcoin if I were trying to move a million dollars in secret. <laughs> so like cash is still there. I mean, the other thing that's striking to me is if we set that aside and think, okay, what is, how does a cashless world look different? I think of a people who don't have bank accounts, right? There's a surprisingly large, sort of shamefully large number of people in America who don't have bank accounts. And for people who don't have bank accounts, a cashless world, it becomes uh, more difficult, right? So that is solvable. You can basically make banks, banks are highly regulated. You could make banks offer essentially, you know, no fee bank accounts. Uh, it's largely solved that problem. If you do that, I feel like, to be honest, the cashless world isn't that different from the world I live in now because I already mostly live in the cashless world, right? Mm -hmm. And so most money is already digital. I mean, people talk about central bank digital currency and they mean a sort of particular kind of sibling of cryptocurrency kind of thing. But like already, the Federal Reserve creates trillions of dollars, not by printing trillions of dollar bills, but just by changing the, you know, changing the numbers in the computers to represent the, you know, banks reserve accounts at the Fed, like it's already virtual, like we're already mm -hmm. there. Let, let's talk about Bitcoin for a second. Like, uh, I feel like to be called money, it has to be a, a stable currency, right? And like, I know what my dollar was worth yesterday is essentially going to be what it's worth tomorrow. And I know, you know, inflation over time, very slowly will change the value of my dollar. But when it comes to Bitcoin, there are just huge fluctuations as we've seen uh, in recent months. I think uh, there, was, there was one dude that traded 10,000 Bitcoin for two pizzas back in the day. Yes, I'm sure he's yes. he's beating his head against the I wall mean, now. I will <laughs> say, I've been covering Bitcoin for so long that in 2011, I used two Bitcoins to buy lunch for, for me and my colleague. You know, we oh. had like smoothies and falafel. So that's like <laughs> the, the $100,000 falafel, right? right? It wasn't even that good of falafel. <laughs> yeah, so, so could Bitcoin be called currency? I mean, you know, I don't want to get into the semantics too much. It, it doesn't seem that much like money to me. I mean, yes, to your point, like, so if the value of Bitcoin doubles, what that would mean if it was actually money is the price of everything would fall in half which sounds good superficially, but then you realize, well, then wages would also have to fall in half. And then if you had a debt, your debt, if it was, you know, fixed and uh, a fixed debt, it would all it would remain the same. So suddenly it would take twice as much work to pay your mortgage or to pay your student loan bill. Right. So it would be profoundly bad as a currency. And, you know, for that matter, people basically don't use it to buy stuff. Right. It, it doesn't it doesn't seem like money. I don't know. It's interesting to me. You know, Bitcoin's been around for a while now, right? For 12, 12 years, 2008. Yeah, yeah 12 like years. Um, and on the one hand, people are willing to exchange a lot of money for it. But on the other hand, they're not doing much with it. I mean, it, like hackers use it for ransom. Uh, people use it some, I guess, you know, in countries where there's capital controls, if they want to get money out of the country, that's maybe the most sympathetic use case. But it's remarkable the combination of how how valuable it is and how limited its uses are so far. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess then to that end, like it doesn't make a ton of sense to use it as a currency, right? Because like, yeah, why would you spend it on some falafel if you expect it to be worth twice that tomorrow or or a hundred times that? Yeah. Right. Well, that's, a, that's <laughs> part of the deflationary spiral, right? In, in yeah. the, if you go back to the depression, part of what happened was because prices were falling, which is the same thing as the currency getting more valuable, people were like, I'm not going to buy something today if I don't have to. If a car is going to be cheaper in six months and I can wait six months, I'll just wait six months. Yeah. Uh, and, and that was, you know, I don't know, 10% a year deflation or something, not 80% a year deflation, right? Like, right. You know, it clearly is not set up to work as money now. I mean, you know, there are like boring use cases you could think of for blockchain, like 
uh, doing something like what credit cards do, but with lower fees, or doing something like what you know money transfer services that people use to send money back to their home country do, but for lower fees. Like I can think of like really useful, boring, you know, non-world historical uses, and it's kind of surprising to me that we haven't seen more of those. And I don't really know why. I guess it's just that those are harder problems to solve. One, and then they're also pretty highly regulated as the other, right? Uh, right. You have anti-money laundering rules. And there's a reason, you know, banks are largely creatures of regulation. What banks are really good at is like dealing with regulation. And so you do have this, you know, fintech industry now sort of trying to figure out what they can do. And it'll be interesting to see, but it's surprising how long it's been and how little there is to show for it other than a bunch of people who got rich just by buying Bitcoin low and selling it high. Right, right. So maybe, yeah, again, less than as a currency, but like, what is your view of, of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies then as investments? I mean, I, I'm, I'm not here to give investing to, advice. To put you I on the spot. <laughs> I personally would not like sink my retirement in Bitcoin. Right. Like, I feel yeah, like if we you know that you're like, into index end up investing. So I didn't, yeah. I didn't think you'd be like, yeah, I mean, if you go all in on Bitcoin. Around, <laughs> like, I don't know, is the price of Bitcoin going to be higher or lower in a year? I don't know. It's very speculative. It's your life, it's your money, do whatever yeah. you want. But don't, I wouldn't, you know, mortgage my house and put it into Bitcoin. All right. So, so after all you've written about, Jacob, here talking about money, the origins of it, we've covered so much of it. Um, your book goes into fascinating detail. What do you see kind of happening or what big changes do you see happening to the way we handle and think about money in the future? I mean, there's a few things that could happen. Certainly, like, I don't really think Bitcoin's going to be money. I think we can, we sort of just took that one off the table. I feel like the government pretty much has a lock on money, and it's going to be really hard to break that lock. I feel like cash could go away. I mean, there's like boring little changes. Like, there's this yeah. interesting economist who talks about getting rid of the $100 bill because, like, you don't really need it to live an honest life, and it's really good for crime. Can we get rid of the pennies, too, while we're at it? Yeah, I'd love to get rid of the pennies. Pennies and nickels. Yeah. But, like, maybe you could broker some kind of deal, like, okay, we'll get rid of the hundred if we also get rid of pennies. <laughs> yes. Um, the interesting thing to me in the present of money, this is going to sound boring, maybe, but I actually think it's hugely important, is how low inflation and interest rates have been for how long, right? Yeah. Like, the constant surprise of the last decade, you know, if you go back again a year before the pandemic... You know, unemployment was below 4%. The government was running a big deficit fund, you know, that basically was funding tax cuts. And like that is a setting where you should, all that money, all those workers having jobs, all that money flooding into the economy, that should be driving up inflation. That's a super inflationary moment. And yet we didn't have inflation and mm. interest rates didn't go up. And like, to me, that's kind of weird. It's kind of weird. <laughs> and it's the essential context for how the government was able to just out of nowhere, spend an extra several trillion dollars last year to respond to the pandemic and is about yeah. to spend trillions ish more. And like, what should happen when that happens is interest rates should go up, people should, you know, invest bond investors say, we're not going to keep lending to the government at 1% for 10 years, if they keep borrowing trillions of dollars, and yet it keeps happening. And like, that is a huge story that is like, it's a driver of government deficits, it's a driver of like, uh, valuations in the stock market, right? Because the lower interest rates are the higher valuations are, it's a driver of, of investment in Silicon Valley, like, there's just all this free money is like the great phenomenon of this moment. And I don't think anybody really understands it. There are various stories you can tell that explain part of it. But I think when we look back on this moment in history, it will be like the, the essential economic context for what's going on with money now. And so to me, the interesting question about the future is what's going to happen with that. It's kind of wonky, but it's a huge deal. Yeah, yeah, it's, it does look like the thing that 10, even, you know, maybe 20 years from now that we can look back on and see, oh, <laughs> yeah, that oh. is what led to us being here now. <laughs> yes, good or bad, right? Like, oh, exactly, how, do, exactly. how did we think 1% interest <laughs> rates were going to go on forever? Like, what? I don't know. And that yeah. kind of makes it interesting and exciting. Yeah, that's the big unknown. So, uh, Jacob, this has been awesome. We appreciate you coming on the podcast, uh, talking through money, talking about your book, uh, and specific to your book. Yeah, where can folks learn more about you and purchase your book? So you can buy my book anywhere you want. I would be thrilled if you bought the book from a giant internet bookseller or from the tiny bookstore on your corner. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, at Jacob Goldstein. That's basically it. Mostly buy the book. 
It's a good book. Awesome. Yeah, it really is, Jacob. Thank you so much for, for putting this out there. It's a fascinating history. And again, we really appreciate your time today, man. Well, thanks so much for having me. It was great. Thanks for asking about the Luddites. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Matt, that was such a great conversation with Jacob. Just so enlightening about the history of something that we take for granted that we use all the time right. that we talk about how to handle it all the time and it's just nice to have some context for how it came to be that we live in a world where money functions the way it does yeah plus he's just a great storyteller right <laughs> it's so good to have somebody on here who can recount some of this history talk us through how money was created and, and have it still be interesting you know? yeah no doubt so so what was your big takeaway from this combo yeah, well, I found it really interesting how we, so we, we, we talked about the Luddites. I'm glad Jacob was excited uh, for us, <laughs> for his ability to tell that story. Uh, but what's really interesting about that is that that was a piece of technology that dramatically changed their lives, right? And instead of uh, adopting it or instead of pivoting to, you know, to maybe something else, they fought against it. And then where did that leave them? You know, uh, dead. Yeah, a lot of, a lot yeah. of them were, were executed. And, and so, like, if you take that same way of thinking and think about, you know, where money is today, whether it be uh, with investing, I'm even willing to say maybe even a little bit with crypto, you know, as far as like Bitcoin and some of those things too. But I think it's important for us to maybe look forward a little bit. To me personally, it's a little bit uncomfortable <laughs> to think through what would it look like, you know, when it comes specifically to investing. What, is, what, like, what does it look like to invest in a cryptocurrency? And even earlier in the interview, we were talking about the ability of our belief to sustain something, right? Uh, it was the trust and the belief that folks had in paper money that allowed it to be a success originally. And so I guess what I'm saying here is I, like, I want to challenge myself to think through the different things that are kind of coming down the pike. I'm going to try to foster maybe more of an attitude of openness <laughs> and acceptance of some of these new technologies, of different ways of investing our money that haven't looked like what it's looked like over the past number of decades. Yeah. I thought it was interesting too, when he was talking about getting off the gold standard and how it was essentially a false belief. Yeah, that, that was money, something that the traditional economists thought was going to completely wreck the economy. Yeah, essentially that there's a fixed amount of gold that equals a dollar or $20 or whatever. And that was a way of looking at money. But money is so much more than that. And money morphs over time. Yeah, it's <laughs> and evolved. The, yeah. And, and also too, but I think my biggest takeaway was talking about money as time travel. And I think it's it's so true. Like we, we have the ability in some ways to take on debt, to pay for something in order to get somewhere in our lives, right? That's what going to college is all about. And many, many kids taking off student loans in hopes that they will make more money in the future. And the exact opposite is true as well. That's what investing is, right? It's saying, corporations, I'm going to give you my money because I believe that what you're going to do with it is better than what I can do with it right now. And it's going to benefit me in the future. And I think that's just an interesting and helpful way of looking at the way we handle money in the here and now. And it actually, in my mind, makes debt seem, makes me even more apprehensive <laughs> to take on debt hmm. unless it's under the right circumstances, right? Because you are sacrificing something in the future if you take it on now. But yeah, I think sometimes it's that subtle mental shift in the way we think about money, the way we think about its attachment to present day and future us is it's just fun to think about. It's interesting. Yeah, just like Marty McFly learned back in Back to the Future, when you time travel too much, it messes things up. That's you true. Know, you, can't, <laughs> you, you don't want to take on too much debt. I guess that's the financial lesson we could all learn from Doc Brown. But uh, yeah. all right, man, let's, let's shift gears. Let's get back to the beer for this episode. Uh, for this one, you and I both enjoyed a Rodenbach classic. I think just a few years ago, they used to just call it Rodenbach. But now that they've released a bunch of different variations, on it. Now it's Rodenbach classic, kind of like Coca-Cola classic. It, well, it, it's like the drinking version of putting on a pair of Chuck Taylors, you know? It, it, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> what were your thoughts on this beer? Man, so it was uh, just a little bit tart uh, and it was very oaky and incredibly refreshing. The beer pours a light brown. It's got this distinct taste of like beers from that region, this like Flemish, slightly vinegary kind of action going on. Um, some have more than others. This one's definitely a reserved version yeah, uh, of that kind of beer. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's still delicious, I think. Yeah, compared to a lot of the barrel-aged showers that are like more stateside, I guess, that they, they tend to be more aggressive. And obviously, I mean, they make more aggressive versions of this beer, but with this just kind of being the classic, it kind of makes me think of some of the beers that we have here, some of the more aggressive barrel-aged showers hours and it almost tastes like that you take that and then you cut it with some apple juice you know <laughs> so it's, it's kind of got like the sweeter uh fruity nature to it but at the same time you can still taste the barrel just like you said and there's a touch of that sourness going on if you've never had sours and you're maybe afraid of them i feel like going to the rodenbach would be a good introduction to what barrel aged sours are all about no doubt all right so that's going to do it for this episode for folks that want show notes and a link to jacob's twitter handle jacob's book we'll put that up on our website at howtomoney.com that's right and so that's going to be it until next time, Joel, best friends out. Best friends out. 
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're really choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.